Good morning. For those that don't know me, my name is Barry. I'm one of the assistant pastors here. It's good to see you. We are approaching the end of um, a series we've been doing on this second letter to Timothy. Um, one of Paul's so-called pastoral letters. Letters that he writes to people to build them up, instruct them and develop them as leaders of the church. And as we draw to a close, or as Paul draws to a close, you can see here that the language changes a little bit. As he gets closer and closer and closer to his punchline and, and the sort of fundamentals that he wants to, um, to get across to Timothy, he gets a little bit Solomon Stern. Now you never hear me do that, do you? Or Mark. He just gets a little bit kind of like... Right, if you don't get anything of anything I've said, get this. And that's what this little passage feels like. He says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead. Now, if someone starts a sentence with that, you know that what's about to come is probably quite important to them. You think, ah, right, he's annoyed, or he's got something important to say. And he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in, the, in view of his appearing and his, in his kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the word. Preach the word. It's a really strong statement. It is, after all, a letter. It's not a, a thesis or a speech. It's a letter to someone he knows. And he puts these prefaces to it and says preach the word what he's saying is preach the word not the culture you're in be relevant to the culture but preach the word into it not the other way around don't preach the culture into the word a long time ago now uh, 1988 in fact Jill and I went to Israel just for a holiday and I remember sort of strolling around the places that you stroll around there um, including the the Christian shrines there which are somewhat dreadful in places but interesting and spotting this Coptic monk basically there he was about my age at the time and um, which was quite young and um, dressed in you know the sort of habit thing and and was meditating or, or something. And I at the time was a young Pentecostal. I was sort of coming from central London to, to here. And I met this guy. And we were literally almost worlds apart. Worlds apart. We couldn't be more different, even though we were the same age. And yet we were the same. He and I were brothers. We were literally linked in a family together but we were incredibly different we probably would find it difficult even to communicate even if we knew each other's language the concepts that we would hold would be incredibly different our notion of God would be different our notion of Jesus would be different our experience of the Holy Spirit would have been different but we were linked, we were the same we held something together that transcended all of that and brought us together. And there was him from East Africa, I assume, uh, in Jerusalem. There was me from the centre of London. 
And from that moment on, I have never believed that my culture defines truth. I quite like my culture. I don't really want to live anywhere else. I enjoy it. I like the things it has to give for me. But it's not truth. It's just a bit of truth and a whole load of untruth. It's not the whole truth. My culture is okay. It's as valid as any other. I'm not anti-English or anti-British. I don't like being told not to be so English. I'm very happy being English, thank you. All right, I wouldn't say that to an African or an Australian or a Frenchman. Don't be so French. I wouldn't get away with it, would I? I'm happy being English, but it's not truth. It's not truth. And Paul stresses that people will always have, they will always belong to, a spirit of the age. They will always have a culture. And there will always be things that they prefer to hear because that's what their culture tells them is truth. Think about how many countries there are in the world today. About 200 plus? It varies, doesn't it? And you know, it goes up and down. And think about how many ethnic groups there are in each country. And then multiply that across time. How many different cultural attempts have there been to explain truth throughout human existence? Thousands, hundreds of thousands. How many do you think are right? The answer is all of them and none of them. Which one do you draw truth from? Where do you derive your sense of what's right and truth? How much faith do you have in it? There's a Chinese proverb, which has preceded me on the screen, which says this, if you want a definition of water, don't ask a fish, which is counterintuitive, because you think a fish would know all about water, wouldn't you? you think that would be important to the fish. If you know any fish that think that, come and see me afterwards, because you've been hearing things. But um, the picture holds. If you find yourself immersed in something totally, such that it becomes your world, you're not a very good judge of it because it affects your judgment of everything else. Although you need it to sustain you, it kind of pollutes you and makes you not objective about what you're seeing. Philosophers call this spirit of the age thing zeitgeist because if you put it in German, it sounds more authoritative and it sounds more accurate. It's not, it's just more difficult to spell. But um, that's what they call it. If you, might, you might find it on the internet called zeitgeist. It means the spirit of the age, the, what's the prevailing sense of what is true and wise. But it's not truth. Neither zeitgeist nor culture is truth. It's an integrated system of beliefs and values and institutions which bind one society together at a given time. We get a sense of identity from it, perhaps a sense of dignity, security, and maybe continuity from it. And it provides a set of answers to the problems we currently have. And it says this is what life is like, but it isn't, because it will be replaced by another one pretty soon. And if you base your life on it, if you allow it to be sovereign and dictate what you regard as true and valuable, you will get disappointed because you will find it's limited, 
in length and, and duration, but also in truth and depth and satisfaction value. You can't really understand something that has shaped your entire view of life and all the more if your whole identity depends on it because it's, it's a lens in front of your eyes and you're looking at everything through that lens um, and not seeing it properly. And out of that, out of that culture, that spirit of the age, come what Paul would call and indeed I would call preference doctrines. Things that we would like to be true because they fit in with our cultural definition of what is just and right and nice and good. And Paul says this, Men will not put up with sound doctrine in times to come, but to suit their own desires they will gather round them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Paul says that whatever the spirit of the age is, the word stands above it. The word of God replaces the culture of the time, or at least transcends it. It doesn't ban it or say that it's wrong. It just says, I have something else to tell you. Let's think about the culture that we are in and the way that we decide what is right and true. When Christianity was founded um, for about 1,700 years, for a very, very long time, the source of knowledge was held to be God and Scripture and meditation and philosophy centered on that. It's not that everything in the Bible was taken to be literally true. Actually, very few people in Christian history have thought that. But it was held to be the source of truth, of transcendent truth, of something which would move from culture to culture and time to time and still remain true. And about 300 years ago, that changed fundamentally. Because there was a, it was felt with the rise of reason and science, we needed more reliable information. This couldn't be trusted anymore. And when Descartes said, I think, therefore I am, he started a new culture. Didn't mean to, but he did. And out of that so-called enlightenment has come the country that we, or the culture that we take for granted. Great advances have come because of this. This is not all bad. Medicine. Um, I would have died in my infancy if I hadn't been born in this culture. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here right now. I wouldn't have made it to more than about four or five probably because of my ret- respiratory problems. Wouldn't, wouldn't have survived. Um, technology for living, heating, freezing, entertainment, travel. Uh, political and social innovation. Democracy comes out of this. All good things. But the problem with it, of course, is that we have saddled onto all that list of good things the expectation it will deliver everything, not just good things. And our society, which we would call, uh, or we used to call modernism or secular modernity, has wrenched away our attention from the truth of God to this assertion that all of these things will provide everything we need and that we should serve it. We should serve the industrial growth ethos 
of our society and make sure it carries on. But of course, it doesn't quite work out, does it? Because it misses out vital things. Once we believe in human reason, which is what the modern age was based on, we marginalize and neglect everything else. The material becomes more important than the spiritual. Thinking becomes far more important than feeling. Um, What you do defines you rather than who you are as a person. Facts become sovereign over intuition and certainly over faith. And we value activism and busyness and hard work over peace and contentment. How many people do you hear say, I am content? I'm not saying you never hear it. But it's rare. And it's rare despite the fact they might be millionaires. And money, of course, over everything. Security, status, happiness, the lot. Um, There was a sociologist called Max Weber who who said this. I think this is a bit damning. This is a bit miserable, actually. But it's it's kind of on the button. Um, He says, the modern world has become dreary, flat, utilitarian, and leaving a great void in the soul of men, which they seek to fill by furious activity, devices, and substitutes. That in any way true of our lives? Could we look at things which say, look, we've taken the culture and brought it into our faith rather than taking our faith and trying to make the culture more godlike? It's a challenge. It's a really difficult thing to resist. It's like, it's like you know, rowing up a, a, a river the wrong way. But that is the call to faith that Paul has for Timothy. Preach the word. He says, in season and out of season. So when it's convenient and easy and when it's hard and tough. The word always. Of course, society uh, in the last 30 or 40 years has realized that it's very thirsty. That modernism isn't satisfying its, its, its needs. The trouble is when you're desperately thirsty... Um, you can sometimes drink the wrong things, a bit like drinking salt water. And, and that is what postmodernism is apparently all about. We rebel against modernism and we replace it with things which give us a feeling of meaning without any substance. That's what it, I, I've been wrestling with this for about 10 years. I still don't understand what it is. It's still post. It's not actually become anything. But the image has replaced the word, hasn't it? Now, we, we, do you remember the dome? How long was that? 11 years ago. I I went there and and there was this vast bombardment of image and noise and sound and idea and concept and not one scrap of substance at all. The best thing about it was the building. I thought I'd quite like to meet the architect. I think it's a fantastic building. I just need to get rid of all this rubbish inside it and turn it into something useful. It was just an attempt to kid us that We could be fed by image and concept and idea. And it was all based on human achievement. The whole thing was a monument to man. Human beings have become Facebook pages, haven't they? I I flirt with that occasionally. I always vow I never will again. Um, I get so much abuse. I do. Everything I say, people just abuse me. I'm starting to do it now just to attract attention, you know? Um, But anyway... Um, 
And also we, we, um, we've, we've deified a couple of new things, haven't we? Liberty and choice. You've got those two gods in your life. Freedom and liberty and choice are the two things we regard as most important. Paul says this, the word transcends people's choice of truth. That's why Jesus will always be radical and call you out of that culture. The word says that God is there. The spirit of the age says believe that if you want to, but science is there. The word says we need God. The spirit of the age says we can do it alone. I can always call him if I need him. The word says God loves you because you are. The spirit of the age says your worth depends on what you do and what you achieve. The word says God loves the poor and humble, both materially and spiritually. The spirit of the age says give me my five minutes of fame and make me rich quick. The word says Jesus is central. The, the spirit of the age says any idea is good if you hold it passionately. The word says God is truth. The spirit of the age says truth is whatever I prefer it to be so long as I don't interfere with anyone else. The word says love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your strength, all your mind and all your strength. Christians believe in God. All the other choices are free to be made, but some of them are error. That's a very unpostmodern thing to say. And they will lead to a place of dryness and dissatisfaction. The word says, Jesus is God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The eternal existence became flesh and dwelt among us. There are not, and there can't be, multiple versions of that truth. I don't know if you saw that clip at the beginning, but there was a, a line in it um, which said that, that Jesus is God. We cannot and we will not candy coat that message ever. And the word says that this is abundant life. To preach the word means to free people from the empty promises of the spirit of the age. To free people from the lie that says that you can be happy, fulfilled and released into your fullest potential without God. Spirit of the age isn't wrong when it says you can be happy. Of course you can be happy. But there's an abundant life that comes through Christ. And of course preaching the word doesn't mean what you think. When that, the image that comes into your head is somebody standing outside Ealing Broadway station shouting at people and condemning them. Preaching the word is a living thing. It's a changing, dynamic, growth thing. It's the sort of thing we talked about last week, something that's alive. To realize the dream that God has put inside your heart about the person that you really, really want to be. To make that dream something with everlasting and eternal fruit. One of the things that um, I found difficult about working in industry, and God bless you, those that are here that do this, but I, this is not a condemnation, it's just something I found difficult, was that everything I did and achieved was geared towards one thing. 
and that was March the 31st. And that was called the end of the year. I had so many end of years in my life, I didn't know where I was coming or going. I'd done January, Chinese New Year, Financial New Year, School New Year. But on, as soon as I walked in on April the 1st, everything I'd been working for got reset to zero. Like the mileometer on your car. Back to zero. And then we'd have this encouraging talk by the managing director who would say, you can be heroes for a day, you're now villains until we get the next set of results. I thought, I felt wonderful, thank you for telling me that. My entire year has just gone up in apparent smoke. What I love about God is that you're not as good as your last achievement. You're not as good as your last set of sales figures or anything that you have done in your life. You're good because he's made you good. And that transcends the spirit of the age and will always be true in every culture. The invitation is that we can discover that whole truth with God and trust in it as a compass for life as a way to guide you through all those times when the spirit of the age lets you down, which it will. And that's what's on offer with Christ. Nikai, I wonder if I could invite you guys to come back up. And I um, just want to ask you to stand. And pray together. I'm going to offer a a general invitation. If you'd like us to pray with you about anything I've said. Or anything that is in your life. Where you need the word. Where you need the presence of God. Where the culture. Where science. Where medicine. Where life cannot answer your deepest yearning. We'd love to pray with you. And we'll be here at the front. We'll just make ourselves available for you. Don't miss that opportunity. Just before we worship again with the band, let's pray. And ask God to open our minds to what he has for us. Father, we thank you for the culture in which we live and all its many gifts to us. We thank you, Lord, that we are healthy, and if we're not, there are those who will seek to make us healthy. We thank you that we are educated, and if we want to be educated more, we can be. We thank you, Lord, that we are warm, that we have food to eat, and everything that our culture has brought us. But forgive us, Lord, if we seek truth in it at the expense of you. And call us back. Melt our hearts, break our hearts, Lord, to bring us back to you for truth. Amen.